thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as is true every week, I'm delighted to have you join me for this episode. I want to talk to you just a minute in a more personal level to say how much I appreciate those of you who listen. I hear from some of you, and I'm thankful for what I do here, and I hope the podcast is helpful to you in thinking through this intersection of our understanding of God and law and liberty. And I really try to give careful attention to the things that I cover to make sure that it's substantive and not just entertainment. There's nothing wrong with being entertained, and there's nothing wrong with trying to keep up with the latest of what's going on in the news and understand it from a biblical perspective. But my heart really is to help establish foundations and grounds, predicates for acting in this area of law and government because, to be honest, there aren't too many places that you can go to get that. I've not found them, let's put it that way, and I've been doing politics for 28 years since I first ran for and was elected to the Tennessee Senate in 1994. And um, I can go to seminars that are theologically grounded, you know, pietistically directed, or I can go to political policy conferences, and the two never seem to really connect much except in a superficial way. And I've, I've discussed that in previous podcasts, you know, efforts to keep boys from swimming in the girls' swimming pool or racing against them on the track. You know, those are great, but we can approach those in ways that capitulate to the prevailing worldview and not even realize that we, we've skipped the Christian train over onto the godless evolutionary nihilistic train and, and we don't even know that, that we're undermining ourselves as we try to do the good and right thing. So I, I really want to help lay foundations as much as I can. And as I've thought about what I've been covering and I reflect on conversations that I have with, with people, even within my own sphere of Christian policy legal work, I, I thought, you know, sometimes you really do need to start at the beginning. I mean, after all, Julie Andrews sang about that, didn't she, in The Sound of Music? When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. And, and oftentimes, I realize we, we pick up our politics, our view of law, our law of government, kind of catches can. There's not a strong foundation laid, and so we find ourselves in all kinds of problems and no way to extricate ourselves from them. So, for example, in recent days, depending on when you're listening to this, the... Um, Respect for Marriage Act just passed through Congress. You know, 20 years ago, that would have been impossible that such would happen. Uh, Congress was never going to do it. But in 2015, the United States Supreme Court held that the word liberty in the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause was the right to define and express your own identity. And I've mentioned in previous podcasts that this is the repudiation of everything that the Bible says at every point, that we are never free to determine our identity. There is a givenness to all of creation. And so, you know, by and large, uh, we did nothing. The Christian community, the Christian policy community, Christian legal community, we didn't do anything. 
And the laws had its pedagogical effect. We had 12 Republicans decide that they could vote for it. They've developed a new understanding of, of law and government, and even Roy Blunt from Missouri, who uh, I think at one time led a seminary, uh, voted for it. And you're thinking, how could, could that happen? Well, it's because our foundations are not right, to be honest. And I realize, you know, everything, as my pastor, Dr. George Grant says, some of you here on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, says everything needs to begin with who is God and what has he done. And last Sunday, Dr. Grant preached a sermon on the Magnificat, the story in Luke, where Mary praises God when she realizes, you know, I'm going to carry the Son of God in my womb. And he said that her song is theocentric. And I couldn't help, as I thought about that, think of another conversation I'd had with a friend of mine in the field of law, and I was saying that a question that I had been asked by a leading Christian legal organization had flabbergasted me. Like, why would they even be asking this question? Wouldn't, wouldn't the answer be obvious? And my friend said, no, it would not necessarily be obvious because your whole conception of law and the cosmos, in a sense, is completely different. And so it's like you're speaking to English people in French. They, they, they don't have any categories for understanding what you're saying. So when you talk about common law, you can't assume that anybody knows what in the world common law is or that they're sharing your understanding of common law. And most lawyers since, oh, who knows when, but I'd say at least since the 30s, if not sooner, 1930s, were taught a strictly humanistic, secular, godless view of common law, okay? And that's not the view of common law that, that I have, so when I talk about common law and what common law would mean, I get a lot of blank stares and, huh, and, well, what do you mean, or could you explain that? Because it's like I'm speaking broken English and French all together, and it just doesn't make sense. Now, how does that fit with Sunday's sermon in Theocentric? Is I happen to think, how many people would know what theocentric means? And even if they, you know, studied etymology to say, okay, theos, God, centric, center, so God should be in the center of everything, would then think, okay, what does that now mean for my understanding of law, of government, of my responsibilities as a citizen? I might think of theocentric in terms of, okay, the family is really important and I need to be a godly husband, or if you're a woman, a godly wife, or um, I need to be godly parents, or if you're a child, or particularly not too many probably listen to this podcast, but I need to learn how to respect the authority and be obedient to my parents and so on and so forth, and that would be theocentric. But how does that theocentricity work its way out beyond my life within my home? So, I want to take a little time to lay a foundation that will, will serve us as we go forward and think about this question of law and government. And to be honest, if I was teaching a class, I guess, instead of doing a podcast, I would have said, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to start my whole class in government and then work my way from here. And I'm not going to give it some title like building blocks or foundations or other things I've done 
because I want to avoid this idea that, well, if I'll just do these things, then, you know, America will be saved, we'll get the right president, or, you know, Congress will do the right thing, or whatever it might be. So, so bear with me as I now launch into a new nameless series, and uh, we'll just go from week to week, building on what I'm going to cover today. Now, for those of you who might want to follow along, I'm going to be taking some material today out of lectures that were given by Abraham Kuyper at Princeton Seminary in 1898. You might find them under the title Stone Lectures by Abraham Kuyper. You might find them Lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. But you can find them online, a PDF, and, and you might want to get it. I'll try to uh, provide a link to one of them wherever that may be possible for me to do. I don't know much about technology. But I am taking material from chapter two on the question of the nature of religion. Now, to be honest, I hate the word religion because it sounds man-centered, like it's, it's the study of man's pursuit of God or something. But that's the word that he used in 1898, and I'm not gonna try to scrub it up or clean it up, okay? And to be honest, one of the things that I realized in the last week was that my view of some things in the Christian life and of Scripture was not theocentric. And I realize it's easy to think I'm theocentric, I'm God-centered, I'm God-focused, and not really understand the depth of what that means. So here is what I'm going to try to do today. In his second lecture to the seminary students at, at Princeton, Kuiper posits four questions to the students, and he says they are mutually dependent, fundamental questions. Now, your answer to the first question, in other words, will determine your answer to the second, and your third, and your fourth. It's, it's consistent with what I've said in the past, that cosmology informs our eschatology. Protology informs our soteriology and our eschatology. The first chapter of any book sets a framework for what will follow in the rest of the book. We get our cosmology wrong, we'll get everything else wrong. From our soteriology and strictly matters of salvation, to politics, to law, to government, you name it, we'll get it wrong. Start in the wrong place, you'll wind up in some awful places you never intended to go. And he says, so, so these are mutually dependent questions, and today I'm only going to look at the first, but I'm going to repeat them all just so that you can have them available to ponder the rest of the week. And this is the first one. Does religion exist for the sake of God or for man? Second question. Must religion operate directly or immediately? Now, what he's talking about there is does God operate directly upon the individual a person and in respect to institutions in society and those who, of course, lead or operate, run and manage those institutions? Or does it have to come through uh, mediation? And, and in what way then would it? So, for example, in part of what he says, the Catholic Church at one time was the mediator between God and man. So everything had to be done through the Catholic Church 
there was no real sanctified or holy life independent of out from under the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So that's that's the question he's sort of asking there. Then he third question he says, can it remain partial in its operations or has it to embrace the whole of our personal being and existence? And what he's getting there is does it only affect, for instance, my personal life? Does it affect only my personal life in my family or my extended family? Would it extend to work? And in the context of our podcast, would it extend to how I think about citizenship in the state of Tennessee in the United States? Does it extend to my thinking about the nature of law in general and the nature of law in general to civil government? So that's the question he's getting at there. Okay, the fourth question is worded a little oddly, but here it is. Can it bear a normal or must it reveal an abnormal character? Now, what in the world is he talking about there? And what he's, what he's saying is, in other words, is the nature of religion soteriological? Is it, does it posit that we live in a normal universe from the get-go, unaffected by sin, or has sin affected the cosmos, and therefore we live in an abnormal environment that needs saving. So I hope that makes sense. Now, today we're going to focus on just the first question, does religion exist for the sake of God or for man? I think, I don't know, we would all want to say, okay, this is a trick question. It needs to be about God, right? Yeah, so religion exists for the sake of God. And that's easy to say, but then what does that actually look like? And do we actually live like that's true and think in those kinds of categories? Or is it really about man, about me, my subjective state as a, as a person? Okay. Now here's how Kuiper answers the first question. He says, man's religion ought to be not egotistical, and for man, but ideal for the sake of God. And that's worded a little clumsily, but in other words, our religion should not be egotistical about ourselves, focused on our ego, but on the ideal that is God. Now, where I came to think about this, and the reason that I've taken on this topic for today, is because I was signing a bunch of letters to people who support our ministry financially. And I was using the word joy in connection with Christmas, a little postscript. I like to write a postscript on all my letters just so that I'm, I'm conscious that somebody's actually sent us money and and I want them to know I'm, I'm conscious of that. It's not just a pre-printed signature or I just signed it, but I'm thinking about those people and I pray that postscript for those people as I set out to write my thank you letters, okay? Now, I was writing this word joy, and I thought, what is joy? Is joy an objective thing or a subjective thing? Is there something about joy that is that is fundamentally true about it, or is it my own, what I consider joy? Do I define what joy is? Is joy dependent upon my subjective mental states or the circumstances around me. And I was thinking, so how do I think of this verse, the joy of the Lord 
will be your strength. And what sense is that? And, uh, and you know, probably asking those questions, you're thinking, wow, you're a weird guy, and I am a weird guy, but I got to think about it. Well, the verse of Scripture that popped in my mind was Hebrews 12, 2, which says, For the joy that was set before him, referring to Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, he endured the cross and despised the shame, and, you know, there we go. So, I thought that's an odd verse to think of in connection with joy. But it's saying something about joy and Jesus. Now, I'd always thought of that verse as having nothing to do with Christmas. It sounds like Easter, right? The cross, the shame, and but I thought, well, you can't think of, of Jesus at all without at least subconsciously holding in the back of your mind the incarnation. So once Jesus is injected into the verse, well, underneath that somewhere is the whole concept of the incarnation, that Jesus is the Son of God revealed to us by having been joined in an indissoluble bond with the human flesh of the first Adam before the fall. And, and while never commingled, they are both there in the person of Jesus, man and God, the God-man. And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so in that sense, it's a Christmas verse. But it says, for the joy that was set before him. Now, what's interesting is that joy was, was the predicate for what he did. In other words, the joy wasn't so much, oh, wow, this is so great. I'm being nearly whipped to death. I got this great crown of thorns and blood dripping down and I'm being nailed to a cross. And oh, wow, this is, this is so cool. I am having so much joy right now. It was the joy that was set before him that, that was the predicate. It was the foundation for laying aside his glory, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, of humbling himself to take on the very form of man and become obedient to the cross. So there was, there was a joy that Jesus had that before anything happened prompted him to act. And then I began to realize, well, if well, I always thought of the verse, actually, as, well, the joy was that Jesus would save me. The joy was knowing that I would be saved, that people would be saved. That was the joy, and he was delighted to do that. And then I got to thinking, wait a minute, this is exactly not a theocentric view of Christmas or of the cross. Think about it, particularly if we are want to teach and preach that when Jesus died, he died for all so that all could be saved, well, any joy he would have in the, the, the atonement of the cross would have to be tempered by the fact that all that he was dying for were not going to be saved. Nobody preaches that everybody's going to go to heaven except those who are heretics, right? So if, if his joy was dependent on people going to heaven, it would have to be tempered by the fact that, well, I've died for everybody, but not all of them are going to be safe. So, well, not as joyous as I would have hoped. But that also means that Jesus's joy was dependent on something outside of himself happening. Now, that creates a real problem because it's clear in Scripture that God needs nothing. He lacks nothing. So to say that his joy was to be found in people being saved is to say Jesus needed to become a man because he needed to save people. And if he didn't save them, he would be unfulfilled. He would be lacking in himself. And that makes Jesus's joy contingent on something that never had to happen. God never had to create in the first place. And he was under no compulsion to save anybody. So 
all of a sudden I realized thinking of the joy of Jesus as as being my salvation or the salvation of anybody said some terrible things about God himself you see it was me centered theology the joy that we find out when we read what Jesus said in the upper room is that I came to do your will father you had people that were your own and I came to secure them for you and I finished my work he says the same thing in John chapter 6 that you might be glorified so Jesus's joy was in doing the will of the Heavenly Father to secure for them those for whom he would die in order that God would be glorified in other words Jesus's joy was itself theocentric it, it rested in God himself, pleasing the Father. Now, that means joy is, is not, for the Christian, contingent on circumstances. It's knowing we've been joined to Christ, and in being joined to Christ, we are those whom the Heavenly Father has loved from, from before the foundation of the world, and in him we are made perfect and holy and righteous, and that is pleases God, which should be our ultimate joy. Okay. Now, I'm not denying that salvation was important, but let's get back to this concept of theocentric, because here's what Kuiper says. He says, certainly religion has also its human and subjective side. It does not dispute the fact that religion is promoted, encouraged, and strengthened by our disposition to seek help in time of need and spiritual elevation in the face of sensual passions. But, this is what he insists on, it maintains that this understanding of religion, that it's, it's all directed towards me, towards my subjective needs, okay, reverses, he says, the proper order of things to seek in these accidental motives the essence and the very purpose of religion. Now, what does he mean by accidental? He's not talking about, oops, I made a mistake accidental as in they didn't have to happen. They were contingent. It didn't have to fall out that way. It didn't have to be that way. And of course, in that sense, our salvation is, is accidental or contingent in the sense that God never had to create anything to be perfectly satisfied in himself in the relations of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He needed and lacked nothing, okay? So he only can create, as I've said before, for the sake of his glory. Man can only live there for the sake of his glory. It wasn't necessary that we be at all. He says, but there are subjective aspects to it. But he said, we don't find in that the essence and the very purpose of religion. And here's the reason he gives. Quote, it's not God who exists for the sake of his creation. The creation exists for the sake of God. For as Scripture says, I think he's quoting here Revelation, he has created all things for himself. Thus Kuiper continues, and here we'll close out for the day, says the starting point of every motive in religion is God and not man. Man is the instrument and the means. God alone is the goal, the point of departure, the point of arrival, the fountain from which the waters flow, and at the same time, the ocean into which they finally return. Now, I'll come back and comment on that in just a moment, but hang on, let me finish what he says. To be irreligious 
is to forsake the highest aim of our existence, which of course is God. He created us for himself. And on the other hand, to covet no other existence than for the sake of God, to long for nothing but for the will of God, and to be wholly absorbed in the glory of the name of the Lord. Such is the pith and kernel of all true religion. That, my friends, is theocentric. That's what it means right there. Hallowed be thy name, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is the threefold petition which gives utterance to all true religion. Our watchword must be, seek first the kingdom of God. And after that, think of your own need. Now, how often do we really present that? We say, oh, come to this divorce recovery thing because you have a need, and we do have needs. But we come to that recovery that we might be made whole for the sake of the glory of God that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We go to the addiction recovery thing for that same reason. We go to the parenting class for that same reason. Yes, we have needs. There is an aspect of it, but it is all for the sake of the glory of God because we exist only for this, the glory of God. God did not need us. He says that in Acts chapter 17, doesn't he? It's not as if he said God needed anything and could be served by human hands. He was complete in himself. Kuiper continues. First stands the confession of the absolute sovereignty of the triune God for of him and through him and unto him are all things. Romans 11:36. And therefore, our prayer, this prayer, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, remains, as Kuiper says, the deepest expression of all religious life. So, how does that theocentristic view of the world relate to our understanding of law? Well, all law exists for the glory of God. Everything was given a nature unique to itself to fit harmoniously in the created order, that, that it might exhibit a harmony and a unity and a diversity that reflected the glory of God. And we, of course, find scripture passages that say that's what creation is doing. It is revealing to us the glory of God. Pay attention. You're part of the glory of God. And consistent with that, the way we look at civil government is not for our comforts, our securities, or even that we might be able to preach and proclaim the gospel, but it is for the glory of God. Yes, we want the government to protect our freedom of speech, our religious speech, but not for our own sake, but for God's sake. So when we saw people over the last few days crying out about how the Respect for Marriage Act was going to put a crimp in religious speech, religious conduct, my first thought was, oh God, why are we blaming the other side? Why do we not see this as a further evidence of your discipline upon your church to get past this subjective, I need this? No, God doesn't need you to speak for him. Not you in particular. Yes, he's chosen preaching, the foolishness of preaching. But but friends, we can proclaim the message of God in the poorhouse and in jail. Oh, I think that's actually what Paul and Silas were doing at midnight one night, wasn't it? When God reached in to save a jailer and his family. 
and others. You see, if we're not careful, we can profess to be theocentric in our lives and not realize how egocentric we actually are. Well, I'm going to stop here for today. I hope it's been helpful, and I look forward to being with you again next week on the next episode of our unnamed podcast series at God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.